Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us once again for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation. Glad to have back with us Jason Trejo, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, nice to be back with you to kick off yet another week. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend. A lot to catch up on, a lot to catch our listeners up on this Monday morning. So looking forward to our conversation. Morning, Dan. Yes, it's a little bit calmer weekend, and, and certainly so far, kind of calmer start to the weekend in the past couple of weeks. So that's nice. Absolutely, which is a nice change in pace considering what market activity has delivered over the past few weeks. Though, as alluded to, we do have a lot to bring our listeners up to speed on today, including changes to the House View asset allocation preferences and CIO's recommended portfolio positioning. But before we get into the changes outlined within the April UBS House View, as we alluded to, Jason, over the past few weeks, we have been covering the banking system crisis and its impact to global financial markets and the the economy. So we'll get an update on that, but maybe we can begin with the Fed. So thinking back to last week leading up to Wednesday, all eyes were on the Fed as investors watched to see what the central bank would do and say in light of the banking crisis. Now, the meeting did result in a 25 basis point rate hike, but also changed guidance as well as forecasts. So Jason, how did the stress impact the Fed decision and what does it suggest about policy going forward? Well, as you mentioned, Dan, the 25 basis points, that was going into it by the morning of or the day of, you know, given how things had sort of calmed down a little bit. What was a little more unexpected is that they didn't raise the kind of the dot plot of projected rates uh, going forward. That stayed, you know, uh, the median dot stayed unchanged, which is basically means like one more hike, and then this cycle is done this year, and they're pretty much on hold for the rest of this year only some cuts next year. So that was a little bit less than expected. There was some thought they would raise uh, the, the dots as well as, as hike. Uh, in the statement that came out with that change, they also, uh, the language from ongoing hikes, which implied that we'll keep hiking 25 basis points until they're still ready to be done, to some additional policy forming may be appropriate. So certainly, you know, a more kind of cautious statement. Uh, what you know, Powell even said, uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell said in his press conference when asked about it, is that given the, the likely tightening and kind of credit conditions because of the banking stress, they think that does some of the heavy lifting for the Fed. So because of that, it's probably equivalent of maybe one or two rate hikes. So if the Fed thinks this is already kind of in the pipeline, that there's going to be tighter kind of lending and credit availability, then they have to raise rates less all those week old. Uh, and I think can explain perhaps why they it didn't raise the all plot and why there's certainly a belief that the Fed could be done already at this point in time. The other thing is, the, I think it was interesting, is that they upgraded their summary of economic projections, which is you know, GDP growth you know, for this year, for next year. Uh, same thing with inflation, unemployment. Uh, the, the GDP growth, at least what was being implied, was actually a significant, you know, reasonably sort of conservative uh, you know, downgrade of GDP growth this year. The way they measure it is looking at fourth quarter this year versus fourth quarter last year, how much did GDP change? It was 0.5% uh, on the December projections. It went down to 0.4%. But that small change, like one-tenth of percent, understates kind of the downgrade of uh, their GDP forecast. Because what we've seen thus far in the first quarter is relatively and surprisingly strong GDP growth. Uh, the Atlanta Fed puts out their own Q1 GDP tracking estimate. As of Friday, it's at 3.2%. So if you grow that strong in one quarter, to get a year-over-year 
fourth quarter increase is only 0.4%. The Fed is basically assuming you know, flat growth for the rest of this year after this quarter, and frankly, even sort of slightly negative growth. So implicitly, they're, they're, they're assuming a recessionary environment by, you know, by later this year. So that, that was, I think, a reasonably sizable adjustment, sort of more pessimism in terms of the macro outlook. You know, whether the Fed is being kind of cautious in terms of its assumed impact of higher credit on the economy, um, or they may know something more than we don't know. The investors know about you know, the banking problems, the banking stress, because they can get data in real time that you know the, the investing public takes at least a week or so for them to get. So there, there's a little bit of, of that going on. But in, you know, bottom line in terms of going forward, they may well be done hiking. I think at this point in time, it just becomes very data dependent. If the banking stress subsides and inflation stays high, they might do like another 25 basis points. And if the banking stress really is is kind of curtailed. And inflation stays sticky, maybe they hike again in, in not only in May, but also in June. Uh, if you look at what the market pricing, it's you know, a, you know, almost 50 bips uh, or, or a 50% chance of a hike in May. And then starting in June, some probability of where it cuts. You know, that's a little bit of kind of speed because the market will price in you know, different scenarios implicitly. And really what we have is almost like two paths for the Fed to take going forward. One is that you know, we don't end up getting a recession this year. Uh, you know, growth definitely slows. But allows the Fed to hike maybe even one more time, but then doesn't cut at all. They kind of stay around five percent. The other is a recession sort of materializes and they end up having to cut, you know, a pretty decent amount, you know, this year, but also next year. Uh, and so there's there's almost a kind of a bifurcation. Either things are okay and they're holding steady, or they're not, and there's there's big cuts. So, so then that's kind of almost how you have to think about it. They're they're going to be more cautious and data dependent. The path really from here depends on how inflation plays out and how growth plays out assuming the stress, the banking stress is somewhat contained by the actions taken this far. Okay, so some helpful clarity, Jason, there with respect to what the path forward for monetary policy might look like. Running with the banking sector a bit further, this was outlined within the latest UBS House view. It is CIO's view that the banking turmoil, the impact, the scope, the scale, not likely to evolve into a full-blown crisis similar to what we witnessed back in 2008. So can you speak a bit to why CIO is taking that view, and how does this all affect the life likelihood of a hard landing scenario at this point? Well, first, if we think about the, the response thus far by central banks globally and, and regulators, they've acted with you know, speed and conviction to restore confidence in the banking system. You know, they've, within a, you know, a day or two of uh, you know, these stresses kind of materializing, they've you know, stepped forward and, and you know, forced some sort of resolutions. Um, if you contrast that with 2008, the financial crisis, uh, you know, it took them a while, like in some cases, you know, weeks or if not longer to kind of fully kind of restore the confidence in, in, in investors uh, and also bank deposits. And that's really kind of the, the key lesson from, from 08 and what I think, you know, reflects the policy response now is that it only really eases once depositors and investors have gained, regained faith that the banks are you know, sufficiently solvent and liquid. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, what they're working towards. I think what gives us some confidence that this won't be a full-blown crisis is that if we take those two points of solvency and liquidity, there's reasons to be, you know, you know, kind of confident that uh, things will be curtailed. On the solvency side, you know, one of the big differences right now versus 08 is just the nature of the assets that the banks own. If you think back to 2008, you know, it, it, the banking crisis, the financial crisis, really stemmed from a lot of bad debt selling to housing and mortgages, and ultimately that left banks and a very variety of investors kind of stuck with kind of toxic assets. These were kind of lower quality assets, mortgages mortgage-backed securities, they were illiquid, and they're basically going to get, you know, you know, not a full bank payback of the principal. In fact, they might get, you know, like 10 cents to the dollar. This time, part of the issue with some of these banks is 
that they own high-quality assets that are liquid, that are safeties or treasuries. It's a mortgage agency, mortgage-backed securities, essentially kind of guaranteed by the government. So the quality of the asset is an issue just because interest rates have gone up. Their mark-to-market losses, would impl- or they mark-to-market, they'd imply a loss. And that's, you know, kind of in some sense there is an implicit hole um, in the in the kind of like the capital structure of the banks if they had to recognize those losses. They don't have to if they don't have to sell. So the asset quality is good. The solvency is good. But that leads into sort of the second problem of the liquidity issue. You know, if you get a lot of you know, deposit outflows very quickly, you know, uh, then you have a situation where then the bank needs to raise money quickly, which means they might need to sell assets or raise debt very quickly. Uh, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the problem is in order to sort of meet those withdrawals, they had to sell assets that had fallen in value. Um, and then in order to sort of do that, they sort of have to start to recognize the fact that they've lost value without either way at their, their kind of their solvency. So to deal with the, the liquidity issue that could arrive at other banks, this is where you've seen you know, the Fed and other central banks kind of step forward with sort of a shock and awe measures to create new facilities, to open up sort of the discount window for, for banks to kind of swap in these assets to, to kind of raise liquidity very quickly. Uh, so they've done this to kind of be very proactive to help you know, reassure investors and depositors. So those two key issues, you know, they don't look nearly as bad as they did in 08. They look like you know, the, the measures taken thus far have been sufficient, um, but you know, maybe not fully sufficient for investors to really believe this is kind of, you know, kind of behind us. I think until you see you know, something along the lines of you know, maybe the, the, the federal government, the Treasury, or the FDIC effectively say we're going to guarantee all uninsured depositors, that that's really going to kind of entail any sort of liquidity crisis. But certainly compared to 08, this is you know, a different matter. Uh, which then segues into you know, the question uh, about the hard landing scenario. Look, this, the stresses have certainly increased the downside risks. The question is just you know, how much. Um, you know, what we can see from the most recent data as of Friday afternoon from the Fed in terms of use of its uh, liquidity facilities, in terms of bank deposits, it looks like the, you know, things haven't necessarily got worse at a variety of these banks. It's still contained at a couple of the banks, and, and we'll get more data you know, this week and next week that can kind of give a better sense of, like, is it starting to be kind of contained and sort of, you know, isolated to a few situations? But thus far, it doesn't look like it's kind of getting worse. It looks like it's kind of more holding steady. Um, the impact of this credit tightening will take place later on. It's not going to be imminent. It's going to take a couple of quarters, if not longer, to flow through. You know, at the same time, the U.S. economy has still got pretty solid momentum. Over the course of the past two and a half weeks, as this banking problems have arisen, the Atlanta Fed has a GDP tracking estimate for Q1. That's gone up from 2% on March 7th to 3.2% as of you know the Friday. And we haven't seen you know labor market stress. So the economy is holding up surprisingly well. And so that positive momentum will continue to the second quarter. So while risk has gone up, I think really what we could say is you know recession risk has gone up, but it's still unlikely to happen before the beginning of the uh, you know, of the second half of this year, you know, if the financial banking stress kind of alleviates, you know, pretty quickly, I think that, you know, hard lending risk goes down further. The flip side, though, is if inflation stays sticky and the Fed has to do more, regardless of the banking situation, you know, that hard lending risk, you know, goes up even further. So, again, that's still kind of a data dependent on how this all, all plays out. So, 
So the risks have gone up, but nothing is inevitable in terms of a hard landing at this point in time. Okay, so Jason, as you know, while the downside risks to growth have increased, the economic outlook is still somewhat ambiguous at this point. But I, I do want to cite, Jason, that within your recent blog, title is Calculating More Than Cautious, you do state that the current market pricing reflects distinct and divergent views across asset classes. So can you expand a bit, Jason, for us what you mean by that? Bottom line, it's basically if you look at the, the bond market, the treasury market, you know, it's saying a recession is going to probably start by the summer. If you look at you know the equity market, it's saying soft landing still looks likely. Let's look at the you know the treasury yield. You know, over the past couple of weeks, past two and a half weeks, the ten-year yield is down over 60 basis points. The two-year yield is down 130 basis points. Uh, these are dramatic declines in terms of. Uh, you know, rates in terms of also like what the market is expecting for the Fed to hike, but also ultimately cut. Um, so just three weeks ago, we were talking about maybe the Fed having to hike rates 100 basis points more and not cut at all this year. Now the market's essentially pricing in the Fed to cut in rates almost 100 basis points by year end. Uh, so that's a pretty pessimistic view on the economic outlook. In contrast, the S&P 500 is down only about 1% from its level right before this banking stress began. That's not you know, a lot given all the sort of the additional sort of downside risks that are taking place. Then if you look at other asset classes, you know, oil is down about 10%, uh, you know, again, from, from when this all began, uh, and has been falling you know, reasonably steadily over the past you know, few months. So it, you could say it's a, a pricing in a fair amount of recession risk. We've seen credit spreads widen out, especially kind of investment-grade corporate bonds, where a good chunk of those are, are financials. And so you could see why the financial system stress could raise, you know, the, the spreads overall for investment-grade corporate bonds. Uh, you know, when they peaked out uh, a week or so ago at around 160 basis points, that'd be around the 80th percentile of IG spreads over the past decade. So, again, you know, kind of pricing in certainly relative equities more recession risk. So sort of a divergent set of outcomes. Usually when that happens, you get some sort of reconvergence. You know, one of the asset classes is either wrong or you have to see some realignment. Boy, boy it's kind of rising a little bit. Maybe they're too pessimistic. At the same time, equities might be a little too optimistic. I would say that there, there's an argument that's sort of been kind of put out there by some investors is that this is less inconsistent than it may appear because you have to think about how the tending dynamic has changed. Three weeks ago, we expected the Fed to raise rates, you know, again, maybe upwards of 100 basis points. That rates would keep going higher. Uh, now we don't think rates are going to go that much higher, uh, but the economy is even slow because credit conditions have tightened quite a bit. Um, so as a result of the fall, fall lower interest rates, that actually would be beneficial all equal to kind of equities that have long duration, like growth stocks, like, like mega cap tech companies. That's kind of you know, probably why perhaps they've rallied. Um, it's also the case that if you have credit stress that's you know, more concentrated in smaller regional banks, this is going to affect small businesses more than large businesses because those small businesses rely on these regional banks for financing. So they're going to be more stressed. Uh, so you can have that part of the economy that is, is hit, but large public companies that still have access to you know, the largest banks, they can still issue investment-grade corporate bonds, they can be relatively immune to all this kind of stress taking place in the economy. So effectively, the credit environment is going to be bad for Main Street, less bad for Wall Street. Now, that's an argument to kind of put forward for all this. I think it's a little bit optimistic to think that the equity markets could be sort of immune to stresses and, and a big part of the economy overall. But I think it sort of speaks to the fact that the, the dynamic of What's causing sort of an economic slowdown is sort of shifted from higher rate to tighter credit, and that's going to have different overall, you know, market implications. I think that's what the market's trying to figure out is 
which of the two is sort of, you know, kind of most important and how should that impact in kind of the proper valuations and performance of different asset classes. Jason, with that backdrop, maybe a good time to follow up on the asset allocation changes, positioning changes outlined within the April UVS house view. And as we mentioned towards the top of the call, CIO has made some notable adjustments to its allocation preferences. So can you explain, Jason, the changes for us and why they make sense for the current environment? Well, the main change we made is we you know, downgraded fixed income as an asset class or upgraded fixed income as an asset class from neutral to most preferred, and we downgraded equities as an asset class to least preferred. Uh, but, you know, the two main kind of reasons why is, you know, what we've kind of already discussed, there is increased downside risk to the, to the U.S. economy. You know, how much they've increased is hard to say, but they've definitely, you know, increased. Uh, and then given what the markets are pricing, where equities seem to be relatively optimistic, you know, versus uh, you know, you know what, what's being priced into credit and bonds. You know, feels like the overall kind of risk reward for equities is less attractive at this point than what we get from high quality bonds specifically, especially over the next kind of six to twelve, you know, or, or six to nine months kind of time horizon. As part of this change, we did upgrade or alter our S and P 500 price targets for June, which is 3900, and December, which is 3800. So based on the current levels of the market, that's been fine. A little bit negative returns, total returns between now and, and year-end. So not, not terrible, but you kind of underwhelming. So it's not as if we're suggesting big downside in equities, and that was kind of the drive in this call. But if your equity market's going to be roughly flat for the, the rest of the year with probably a lot of volatility, um, really what you're getting right now is if you bought the S&P of 100 is, you know, uh, you know, returnless risk, you know, and a lot of volatility. Whereas if you were to buy high-quality bonds like, you know, high-quality investment-grade corporate bonds, agency mortgage-backed securities, you should get a relatively low-risk, mid-single-digit type of returns. And in some ways, being the performance over the past two weeks with, with those bonds up and equities down is kind of consistent with that. So from a portfolio positioning perspective, you know, the guidance is to increase allocations to investment-grade corporate bonds at the expense of U.S. equities. So essentially move up to the kind of higher-quality, safer portion of kind of corporate America. Now, in addition to that change, which I think we view as more incremental, not kind of a big, you know, kind of change in our view, we've been sort of drifting in that direction, you know, for the past few months. But in addition to that, uh, we made some changes to our equity sectors, which resulted in an overall a little more defensive bias versus last month. You know, for example, we upgraded utilities, which is a classic defensive, and that aligns also with consumer staples, another most preferred sector. We also updated industrials, which is showing a decent amount of resiliency. It will also benefit a little bit more from kind of the global story, which looks a little bit better than the U.S. at this point in time. On the other end of the spectrum, our least preferred sectors are financials, which still are under some stress. Uh, you know, technology, in part because, you know, they've done very well recently and they're, they're still not quite expensive. And the consumer discretionary, which is a, you know, again, more of a cyclical sector. So the net result is a little bit more, you know, um, definitely kind of a bias towards defensive versus kind of cyclical sectors at this point in time. You know, uh, in addition to sort of buying kind of, you know, quality bonds, which is one of our messages in focus, another is uh, for investors to think about kind of managing liquidity uh, and the liquidity portfolio specifically as rates peak. If the Fed is done or, or, or almost done hiking, it's likely that Treasury yields have already peaked. And so for therefore investors who have been spending a lot of cash, they need to be conscious of if we do get the Fed cutting rates, you're going to get some reinvestment risk. So you need to be kind of fairly active in managing that liquidity portfolio, you know, preparing for that, that kind of possibility. And, and finally, just in terms of positioning, you know, the, the consequences of these banking stress will be felt globally. But they're going to be most acute in the U.S. where they're kind of concentrated. Uh, and therefore, kind of, you, you know, U.S. equities and U.S. risk assets might be more impact fit, impacted, 
which is why another message is to kind of diversify beyond the U.S. and, div- and diversify beyond the you know, kind of you know, growth stocks in the U.S. Um, it's interesting to see that other regions like EM equities have held up you know, reasonably well. Uh, they have the benefit of China's reopening likely to be accelerated later this year. Um, in an environment where the, the Fed doesn't have to raise rates as much, that means the dollar all sequel is likely to have less support. And that's also one of the reasons why we downgraded the U.S. dollar to at least preferred dollar weakness all sequel kind of benefits investing abroad and it also benefits emerging markets, which is one of our most preferred regions too. Jason, thank you for outlining the asset allocation changes for us. Again, I will point our clients to the April UBS House View and Investment Strategy Guide to read further into CIO's current views and the allocation changes within. So Jason, before we wrap up our conversation for this morning, how would you characterize investor sentiment and consideration of all that has unfolded over the past few weeks and as we look ahead a bit what can we expect to happen in the markets over the near term well sentiment has certainly deteriorated investors are concerned about you know the, the possibility of the stress getting worse of a hard landing i think investor position has lightened up to some extent certainly on the more systematic side that you know invest based on market momentum based on volatility uh, i think there's also concern among investors that well there's been pretty forceful actions by central banks to deal with the banking systems issues. They're not yet convinced that the policy actions so far have been sufficient to really kind of tamp out, um, you know, sort of more bank failures. So if, if, you know, as a result, kind of market's a little bit on edge. But if we get indications of a more significant policy response, for example, if, if the FDIC or the Treasury basically gives sort of a near explicit guarantee that all uninsured bank deposits will be guaranteed, it's really possible that invest, there could be a bit of a market rally for, for risk assets. Uh, especially because, you know, we, we get that risk taken down. We won't see the negative impact ultimately tighter credit conditions later on. And the economic momentum, as I mentioned earlier, is still reasonably positive. So near term, there's a, a chance for risk assets and equities to kind of, you know, balance, you know, overall. Uh, also, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, you know, when we think about the position of portfolios, this is not a call to significantly de-risk your allocations. Uh, it's also the case, even if this doesn't materialize, you know, we could have, you know, further downside, but there's also a lot of money sitting on the sidelines with investors putting into money markets on sitting in cash, essentially waiting to deploy it at some point in time. And the lower equities fall, the more attractive it's the risk for return trade-off becomes, and you're going to see investors, you know, willing to put money back to work. So there's going to be, I think, some resistance in the market, you know, once you see, a, you know, if equities were to fall down to the, you know, the, the 36, 3700 level for the S&P 500. So again, kind of feeds into why we're not, you know, seeing a huge downside for equities. We just don't see a lot of upside, um, you know. But I think the big picture is this market dynamic, a lot of volatility, that will continue, um, even if the bank stress alleviates because inflation is still a problem. And in, until it improves and less improves, the Fed needs sort of financial conditions to tighten for growth to slow. And that just makes it a challenge for or at least for first assets for equities in particular going forward. Jason, a very productive conversation to begin the week. As always, thank you for dropping by top of the morning for the CIO Strategy Snapshot to keep our listeners, our clients current on the latest thinking and recommendations from the UBS Chief Investment Office. And we'll continue to track how market conditions evolve over the near term, as you just outlined for us. So looking forward to regrouping with our conversation again next week. You're welcome and have a good week. 
Likewise. Thank you, Jason. And again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Before we wrap up, I do want to point out to our listeners, especially our clients of UBS, that you can now locate the April UBS House View Monthly Letter and the Investment Strategy Guide up on UBS.com slash CIO. There you can also locate Jason's most recent blog, which he has made reference to on today's podcast. Again, that title, Calculating More Than Cautious. All of these resources, again, located up on UBS.com slash CIO. Though, for clients of UBS, just reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive copies of these publications and blogs directly from UBS. UBS Studios, I'm Ben Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.